Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. I'm Rachel Telford. And I'm Paige Miller. The Grain Talk podcast can be found on Apple, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. This podcast is sponsored by Pioneer Canada. In this episode of Grain Talk, I will speak to Tracy Bowdy about the insects to watch for in your field this growing season. And I will have a conversation with Crosby Devitt, CEO of Grain Farmers of Ontario. First, a Grain Talk news update. Health Canada recently completed its reevaluation of the active ingredient imidacloprid and has determined that with some additional risk mitigation measures, most uses for products containing imidacloprid will maintain their registration in Canada. This is welcome news as grain farmers will continue to have access to this important product that many rely on to protect their crops and mitigate risks to their livelihood. This was a significant outcome as a similar decision was made recently by the PMRA on clothianidin, another very important neonicotinoid product. The decision to maintain registration of these technologies speaks to the important role science and research continue to play in Canadian agriculture. A 2016 study by University of Guelph researcher Dr. Andrea Jones-Bitten and her co-researcher Dr. Brianna Hagen pulled more than a thousand farmers from across Canada about issues such as stress, anxiety, depression, burnout, and resilience. The results of the study found that 60% of farmers experienced anxiety at various levels, 35% suffered from depression, and 45% had high stress, all higher rates than reported by the general population. Since this survey was conducted, many farmer mental health programs, initiatives, and workshops have been developed. The question is, have these programs made a difference? Jones-Bitten is conducting a follow-up survey to assess how mental health issues have changed. The survey explores how satisfied farmers are with mental health support programs, if the stigma around help-seeking has subsided, and if suicide and substance abuse is decreasing. The goal of the survey is to get more than a thousand responses they received from the first survey. The more information they have to work with, the better. Please take some time to contribute to this important research. You can find a link to the survey in the podcast description. Bill C-208, a private member's bill that aims to lower the taxes on the transfer of family farm businesses, has passed third reading in Parliament and has now been sent to the Senate. In the Senate, the bill will have to proceed through three readings, likely a committee stage and then royal assent before it can become law. Currently, Section 84.1 of the Income Tax Act contains what are called anti-avoidance provisions that prevent the use of related company transactions aimed at drawing out tax-free capital. This section, however, can negatively impact the transfer of farm businesses to the next generation, especially when the lifetime capital gains exemption is used. The result is that it can be more tax-effective to sell the farm to a stranger than to a child. Bill C-208, if made into law, will correct this long-standing issue. Those who are considering a farm transfer in the near future involving the transfer of a farming corporation to a child should discuss this with their tax advisors. Looking for good conversation and great agronomic advice? Check out the new Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. Each episode, host Andrew Campbell chats with leading agriculture experts about the latest ag innovations, best practices, tips, tricks, and more. In the latest episode, Andrew and his expert guests discuss some of the newest technology in agriculture, looking at drone scouting, imagery, variable rate, and precision farming. They'll help you determine what the best tech is for your farm, where to focus your energy and resources, and how to get started. Jam-packed with actionable information, 
The Pioneer Made to Grow podcast is a must-listen for Canadian farmers who are always striving to improve their yields. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pioneer.com slash made to grow, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. And now, here's my conversation with Tracy Bowdy. Joining us on the Grain Talk podcast today, we have Tracy Bowdy, the field crop entomologist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tracy. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, Tracy, let's start the conversation with just learning a little bit more about what it means to be a field crop entomologist. I know a lot of our farmer members know who you are. They've seen you out in their fields. They've seen you in our magazine and, and all sorts of uh, agriculture media. But uh, can you give us a little bit of an explanation about what exactly it, it means to be a field crop entomologist? Sure. So, um, as in this role as an entomologist, I've been with them after now for almost 21 years, which is crazy. Um, but really, it's a, mm -hmm. a matter of trying to um, be aware of insect issues and all the most recent research on the different pests and thresholds and management options, and as well, just monitor for um, resistance issues and, of course, uh, things like the major trap network that we have going uh, and just really interact with my colleagues both in the U.S. and across the provinces to, uh, to deal with these different crop pests. Now, we want to talk a little bit to start a conversation um, about what's happening right now in the fields, um, soil insects at the soil level. Um, what's happening in terms of what we're seeing right now? Yeah, so um, with the warm temperatures that we've been dealing with, we're about almost double in some cases uh, growing degree days compared to last year at this time. So a lot of the grubs and wireworms and even seed corn maggot are right up at the soil surface. And though we're planting relatively early, they're there as well. Um, but the positive thing is that we think the crop will get out of the ground pretty quickly and avoid a lot of that injury, as long as we don't get uh, um, drier conditions to continue that may stall or stress the plant some more. But really, I, I, I do want to focus on because I know that some may be seeing grubs uh, in particular. And there's a new pest that we are monitoring for uh, that we know is in Michigan and Ohio. It is called the Asiatic Garden Beetle Grub. And even though it's much smaller than chafer um, and even um, smaller than Japanese beetle grubs, they are more hungry and they can do more damage and even high rates of neonics aren't working on them. So uh, it is something that we do want to keep an eye out for if someone is noticing grubs taking out, especially corn um, in particular. Is there something that people can look for in terms of identifying that that's the grub that I want to be concerned about? Yes, yeah, so for sure. Um, of course, we always look at raster patterns, but something that's even more obvious is this time with this pest, you look at the front end, the face of the grub. And if they have what looks like a, a bulb for a cheek, um, it, it's likely Asiatic garden beetle. And we did actually write up a cropside article for GFO um, that should be out soon or is out now um, that gives you some pictures to look for too. But um, that in particular, that bulby cheek uh, is really what tells you that it's, it's bad, especially when it's smaller than you'd expect for, for taking out so much uh, crop as it can. You mentioned how the, the warm temperatures are affecting the soil level insects. Now, a couple of weeks ago, it got 
really warm to start off the spring season and then it got cold. What about the other insects that came out during that you know warm period that we had and then the cold? Did that impact the, the overall insect population, that sort of shift in weather? Not really, sadly. They're pretty durable. Um, most insects that overwinter here can tolerate a little bit of cooler temperatures. And in fact, in some ways, it's more beneficial for them because it tends to delay crop development or plant development, but they're still able to actively feed. Um, unless we were going to have, uh, you know, frigid freezing temperatures for a longer period of time, um, they really are pretty durable. Now, even those that migrated in, um, we started to see some activity with black cutworm, for example. The moths are here as well as true armyworm. Um, but uh, now that they're, they're, we're generating backup, lots of growing degree days, uh, they're going to go through their development stages uh, either as usual or even quicker than usual. You mentioned that um, some of these insects um, come from other other places. They migrate here. Um, so what are we looking at in terms of, you know, what is um, sort of, I guess, a new threat or, or big threat coming in from, from the U.S. that we want to keep an eye on? Sadly, many, <laughs> but <laughs> mostly um, a lot of the migrant um, insects tend to be moths, although, of course, we are aware of potato leafhopper and a few others that, and, and soybean aphids, for example, that do eventually come here as well, um, even though we do have some resident populations of, in particular, soybean aphids. But for this this year, I mean, we had a pretty bad shrubby worm year last year, so we are, um, in, we've increased our monitoring efforts. We've got, uh, like, 40 traps or more um, in this region now to, to be looking for it uh, and, and seeing if they they come in earlier and the wheat though is progressing pretty quickly so hopefully we may be able to avoid some of their injury uh, and black cutworm as well because we planted early we may avoid some of the injury from it because they can only cut uh, plants up to about uh, v4 that said, those larvae are probably progressing pretty quickly, and so they're bigger in much smaller corn coming up. Uh, so it's something to keep an eye out for. Um, we are monitoring growing degree days and, of course, looking um, for signs of injury in the field. But it's always, that's why we kind of have the network going, is to, to give us a heads up of activity uh, of the adults to know when we have to go out and, and start looking for uh, the larvae themselves doing some injury. You mentioned having a network. What does that entail in terms of the relationships that you've developed with entomologists, say, in the U.S.? Or, or you know, who's part of that network when you mention a network? Yeah, so um, it's now called the Great Lakes and Maritimes Pest Monitoring Network, and it originated from the the um, Western Bean Cutworm Network that we started to establish, even with support from Grain Farmers of Ontario. Uh, and, and that started uh, 2010, was really the major year where Michigan, Ontario, and Quebec joined forces and really monitored for this pest that was coming from the Great Lakes region. And we had already known it was here. So it was a matter of watching it spread and know when um, potential uh, moth captures would trigger us to go and scout. But that has blossomed since then. Um, more more states and provinces started to join and in 2018 we expanded to um, do all of the different corn pests though these traps aren't restricted to being in corn if the pest is also um, in other crops happy to include that data into the site as well it's a matter of just us all monitoring 
the pests like horn earworm, for example, or European corn borer, um, and, and all the others, black cutworm, western mean cutworm, and really getting a sense of what they're doing in the region because um, there's no borders when it comes to these insects. <laughs> they, they, they don't stop at, at, at customs. And um, it really helps us uh, to be aware of what's going on in our neighboring jurisdictions to, to um, follow and, and know what's going to happen here. So it's been a great collaboration. We've got everyone from Manitoba across to Nova Scotia and Canada and Ohio, Michigan, New York um, as well involved. And that may even expand more. There's some interest from other uh, states that um, want to join. And, and in particular, we're going to do something very similar. I'm very fortunate. I have great GIS specialists here at Innovafra that help develop the mapping program and the software that gathers that data. And so it's worked so well um, to give us interactive maps that we're going to do the same for rootworm adults monitoring this summer and uh, collaborate with states all the way from Nebraska to Kansas up to Manitoba and across to Nova Scotia. So um, lots of uh, interaction and data being collected and, and just a, a really good collaboration to know and keep an eye on these pests that we share um, problems with. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned corn rootworm. Uh, what's the current status of that pest in the province? Yeah, I'm concerned about that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> in particular, it, you know, we're at a threshold or cusp where um, what happened in the U.S. is starting, we're seeing signs of that here where they develop resistance to Bt technology. So really all the traits that we use against rootworm in the plants are, are pretty much closely related enough that if they develop resistance to one trait, they can to the others as well pretty quickly. Or at the very least, we're standing alone with one useful trait in a, in a plant that should have two working functioning traits. And that really um, increases the risk of resistance. So um, we are um, keeping an eye on it this year coarse corn prices and the great corn planting weather um, likely didn't encourage anyone to rotate out of corn unless they were dead serious about doing so. So, and that rotation is our best option to try and uh, kill or knock down the rootworm population a bit to, to more manageable levels. So this year we really are paying attention and, and hope that everyone collaborates and informs us of um, potential resistant development so that um, we can get a handle on just how bad of scenario we're in and um, look towards finding other options and encouraging more sustainable practices like relying on these BT traits only in really bad rootworm years and then rotating to either crop rotation, soil insecticides, or even biocontrol nematodes to um, add to that toolbox to try and, and manage our rootworm populations going forward. Because otherwise, we'll, we will be very similar to what's going on in the U.S., where the rootworm has developed resistance to multiple tools. Um, so they are just constantly trying to find uh, ways to manage the pest um, if rotation is really out of the out of the options. What are we looking at in terms of the damage that the corn rootworm can cause? Yeah, so rootworm, the, it, the larva is what's really concerning. So um, they, they overwinter as eggs and just around um, next month, they'll start hatching and you'll have larvae feeding on corn roots. And um, if they're able to overcome Bt proteins that would be in that corn root, 
they will clip those plants and the plants for any node of root that they clip off, you lose 15 to 18% yield, uh, let alone the um, lack of standability of those plants over time, especially in dry conditions, um, where eventually the crop, the actual plants lodge and harvestability is, is very difficult. So um, it, it's really challenging to um, deal with once you start to see that resistance uh, happening. Uh, and then we need to uh, step in and, and help mitigate those issues, the issues, because these, once those larvae um, become adults, the adults are very mobile and they can spread to neighboring fields and just share each other's problems. And, and that's when we start to have to look at um, either area-wide rotation or trying to um, add these other management tools. And, and again, it's not like we want to just have everyone turn to soil insecticides as the next rootworm management tool and use that repeatedly every year because they have developed resistance to those in the U.S. as well. And sadly, with the beetle population, spraying foliar insecticides really doesn't work for them because there's so many beetles and they come out at different, a long extended time period in the summer that a one-time application will not even touch most of the population that will be coming out and laying eggs. So it's not a, a, um, a recommended option for us. So unfortunately, BT technology is our best and uh, safest option, at least in terms of turning us away from having to use insecticides, but their repeated use over time um, as the only management tool has put us in this scenario. So now we need to look at other options like what we're doing with pursuing biocontrol nematodes to um, help at least suppress the population to keep them at a much more manageable level and, and less likely to have um, resistance continue um, over time in, in these fields. What's the best way uh, going about reporting or notifying you that they think that they're seeing these? Yeah, for sure. So that when they, when anyone has planted a BT hybrid that has rootworm uh, traits in them, BT proteins, and they should be seeing uh, control, but they don't, um, then they need to notify both their seed provider as well as myself. You can do all my cell or my email. Um, either way, so that we are aware through the Canadian Corn Pest Coalition, I'm the chair of that, and we've we've taken a commitment to um, being aware of these unexpected damage sites. And um, some some in some sites will collect actual adults. That's where that uh, Jocelyn Smith at Ridgetown University of Guelph could um, test them for that resistance. But even just in helping uh, the grower going forward and neighboring fields for that matter, um, come up with a better um, system going in the next few years to try and mitigate this issue. And that's where that trap network will also come into play. Um, we are, it's a pilot this year. Um, we didn't expect to expand it as big as it already is, but that's great um, because with more U.S. and, and provincial um, counterparts collaborating, we'll get a better understanding of this pest in terms of where it is and what kind of levels we're seeing. And, and just knowing it's going to be a good rootworm year helps us um, going forward and what may be expected next year. But um, we will be placing and looking, we're actually going to be looking for trap participants. So um, I'll be doing a call out shortly for uh, CCAs and growers who are interested 
um, but we'll put sticky traps out in these fields during silking to, you know, six to eight weeks after. Monitor them weekly and just get a sense of what the beetle populations are like so that we can understand if, if a field has a lot of beetles that we shouldn't be seeing, um, then it gives us a chance to go and, and further investigate and figure out what's going on. But even just knowing, we know there's two species of rootworm, northern rootworm, corn rootworm and western corn rootworm. We haven't done a lot of surveys on those two different species and the dynamics that are going on there. And we think Northern has spread a lot more than it, it used to. It used to only be in Eastern Ontario. So the, this trap network will also give us a sense of what the ratio of Western to Northern is in each region um, and figure out uh, what potential risk that um, lays in, in um, their developing resistance and, and even what other crops, because we know like in the States, they've actually developed resistance to rotation um, and we don't want to see that. So if, uh, no. <laughs> if we, uh, you know, are alerted to we've got an abundant population, even in soybean uh, fields, uh, then that tells us we got to pay a bit more attention to that as well and, and figure out um, how to, to address that issue. Because if, if it comes, when an insect is challenged to um, go to extinction, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's going to find a way to survive. Right. <laughs> That's the case with rootworms. So um, it, it is keeping us on our toes, that's for sure. <laughs> you mentioned, so the network and then the GIS mapping systems that are in place and uh, just the online tools. Now, uh, after, you know, 20 years uh, with Amafra and, and working in the field, uh, how have you seen technology evolve and, and how has that benefited you in terms of keeping tabs on new insects or increasing insect populations? Because it seems to me like that ha must have made your job at least a little bit easier. <laughs> yes, it, it has. Yes, um, it evolved. And it's been pretty amazing to see. Um, you know, back in the day where our data would be siloed either in, in um, our individual computer files or even uh, paper copies, right? Um, historic paper copies. Uh, this now gives us um, the ability to, for everyone to share data um, and give us insights without us already having to analyze and figure it out ourselves all the time. So just visually even seeing how, um, for example, with the Great Lakes and Maritimes Pest Modern Network, how the trap counts are building over time for a certain pest in a certain region, that really gives us a, a quick um, analysis. And whereas in previous years, I would have had to take that data, generate some graphs, figure out what's going on and send out alerts. Now I just have to click on the map or the, even the dashboard that does some of the analytics for us uh, and alert anyone who's not paying attention to the site themselves. But more importantly, it is to try and take some of that um, ownership or at least um, ability for growers and CCAs to look for themselves as well instead of having to um, come directly to me for that information. They can visually see it and, and make those assessments uh, for themselves, which is great. That, that allows everyone to um, create more timely applications if need be. And, and I will say social media has helped as well, right? Um, trying to get information on field crop news or even Twitter. Uh, because right. if, if anything, we started the, I started the Bowdy Bug blog 
15 years more. Uh, I've lost track of time. But it was one of the first blogs in, in the Ontario Provincial um, system or service. They, that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that if, if we're going to get information out more quickly, um, this is the route to go. So, um, and it flourished from there, right? And and mm-hmm. we've been able to get much more timely information uh, because nowadays everything's got it. It, it. No longer can something arrive on a newsletter that sits on someone's desk uh, for a couple of days before they can finally read it. it mm-hmm. We really do need to get the information out um, quickly. So, and, and who knows? You know, I'm looking forward to technology like drones and and automated um, systems where uh, we can detect, if possible, it won't likely happen for all different insect pests, but if, if the crop responds to a stress because of that pest and drone, drone and, and light um, filters can indicate that that's happening, then we can even um, apply and, and spot more, more um, precision. Uh, applications of insecticides to to reduce the risk to beneficials. So it, it's exciting, um, a bit overwhelming, I think, in terms of all the, the possibilities. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the rapid pace of where things are at now is pretty incredible when you look back over the last 20 years of this position. And I know on Twitter, like people will post things and tag you and say, what is this insect? And even before you have a chance to see it and respond, they've already got half a dozen responses from yeah. either other farmers or other experts. <laughs> yep. No, and, and that's how everyone learns. So that that's what's what that's the biggest value of Twitter. It's not that I get information out quickly. It's that the community shares what they're seeing too and we learn from each other, which is awesome. Especially I found with Western Maine Cutworm, that's the big one that everyone likes to um, share their scouting um, pictures and and so everyone gets to see what's going on and alerts them to getting out and looking in their own fields too. We talked about a lot of different insects. Um, what else is out there that farmers really need to be concerned about right now? Well, right now, um, we do see cereal leaf beetle activity in, in the cereal crop right now. Uh, it's not heavy, um, but some, some fields are starting to, to have populations. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens with the wheat crop and if it gets uh, keeps developing pretty quickly or if it starts to see drought stress that that could be um, concerning if it if at all the growth stages get delayed and, and the wheat doesn't advance as quickly then that's when maybe uh, the possibility of cereal leaf beetle having uh, more uh, impact on the crop but what I am most concerned about I can see spider mites starting with this kind of heat to have 31 degree days already, uh, not even the end of May. Um, spider mites could be um, prevalent this year in, in soys and dry beans and, and even corn if it gets that bad. And we are suspecting we have populations now that are developing resistance to the only active ingredient that we have, uh, dimethylate, to control this pest in, in especially the bean and soybean crops. So we do have a project with uh, Western University and Egg Canada. So again, there's another pest. If growers um, find populations that they've applied uh, dimethoate to and they're not seeing effective control, 
uh, to alert me to that because we will go and take samples and send them in um, for rapid testing at Western and Ag Canada to de determine if they are resistant to dimethoate and then test them on different products that potentially could be registered for control, but if they're already mm -hmm. developing resistance to, um, that'll kind of knock those products off the list and have us move to what more effective products going forward. Those bugs always seem to be one step ahead of us, don't they? They are. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have never felt confident that I'm able to manage any of these pets every year. Something new or different happens. And um, it, yeah, it's humbling. It's a humbling position to be in. Let's put it that way. Especially something like Western Mean Cutworm. Uh, that one um, I always use as an example where it continues to modify or or um, disagree with um, past research findings. And so it continues to have us um, look for new insights on it and, and new management tactics. So it's, yeah, <laughs> this is, I've got job insurance um, every year. So, but, you know, that's the way to, and I mean, insects in general, I mean, they are part of the environment and, and it, we shouldn't have the mentality that any insect in the field is bad. It, fields are an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as we keep them below a, a population that can do harm, uh, we can help enable some of the natural enemies and beneficials that can come in and help us as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting field, but it certainly keeps you hopping, in a, especially when it starts to get warm and dry like it is this year. So how are the, the populations of the beneficial insects doing? Do you monitor those as well? We do for certain um, pests and projects that we do, for sure. And I would say some are, are increasing. I'll use the example again of Western Mean Cutworm. Uh, when that pest first came into Ontario in, in 2008, 2009, uh, we didn't see a response from that generation. They didn't know to look for Western bean and corn and, and dry beans. But now you can walk through cornfields and see a, a variety of different beneficials um, helping manage them, which is great. And and I will say, I mean, soybean aphids was our big aha where it taught everyone, including growers and, and the research community, just how valuable beneficials are because now the pests that we used to have annually and almost always having to manage has now become you know a pest that might show up one in every five years if that um, and and that's mainly because the beneficials are are helping maintain them at a much lower level um, and and getting to them quickly when they uh, first start to try and establish so uh, some positives I mean we certainly could go further I know there's interest in in developing more habitats and and more precision uh, applications to help ensure that we have beneficial habitats and I think that's where these fields, these pests, entomology, um, weeds, and, and even plant diseases, that's probably the next level we take where we look more at the ecology in fields and the landscape around them and help um, establish these beneficial natural habitat, natural enemy habitats to, 
um, start doing more of the work for us so that, um, and, and even with more sustainable reduced risk insecticides being registered, um, using them and not so that they are not as harmful on beneficials certainly will help um, encourage all of that um, natural um, bio control that we can get from from um, these other helpful insects. So not every mm-hmm. insect's bad at least. So that, that's a positive. A lot of the times when we do encounter something new and we put out some information about it, um, the descriptions say, you know, it looks similar to X other insect. How do we really know the difference between everything, especially if we're, you know, out in the field scouting and, and not really knowing what we're looking at? Yeah, so um, that can be challenging. Um, you know, certainly understanding at least how to identify a moth versus a beetle versus, um, let's say, a plant bug or a stink bug gets you in the right direction. And that we're starting to see more sites and more apps that enable you to be able to um, help in that ID. Um, but certainly, you know, I find someone just sending me a text or even on Twitter posting a, a photo. Although it's got to be a good photo. <laughs> we, have seen, uh, we all joke of how many blurry photos we somehow get as the best people sometimes. And, and we realize, you know, thankfully, as phone technology and their cameras get better, the, the photos improve, but there's still the odd time when you shake your head going, wow. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, there's, there's only a certain level of ability I have to identify something <laughs> with a blurry picture. Um, but that said, yeah, so there's apps and sites like iNaturalist and even um, Bugwood and Bug Guide that are really great resources for ID. Um, and of course, uh, we've got all the different, we've got the agronomy guide and we've got the um, pest manager app and even the, we generated us, uh, soil insects, I think are a bigger challenge because you don't see them very often. And when you dig something up and it's moving, it, it's um, new, but we have the um, early season pest field guide that we uh, developed with GFO as well. Um, that That's a good picture book to, to look through and it's a, P- a pdf too still available online so those resources are a good start um but certainly always open to helping um set up training sessions and um you know making sure that we meet everyone's needs and diagnostic days and other events that help with that kind of uh id diagnostic days one that's one of the events that has been a casualty of the COVID 19 pandemic how has the the pandemic over the past year impacted your ability to do your job out in the field it's been interesting. Um, so in turn, I would say the pandemic forced us to pivot to virtual events. And I think uh, we would agree that the virtual diagnostic day videos, as well as the um, Ontario Ag Conference, was a huge success. Um, it, it does tend to be more work, actually, than, than the <laughs> on-site um, events. But I, I think you have much more outreach that way. But no doubt, like everyone else, um, it's been a challenge for field activity. We, we are fortunate to have summer students still and be able to hire them. Um, but uh, we've got to make sure that they get their own vehicles and, and um, their experience is a bit different. They get the training they need in the in-field um, activity that, and, and learning that they need, but they don't get the interaction like they normally would with all the other students um, at mm-hmm. different um, sites. But 
we're still definitely we're fortunate that we're able to get out there and collect that data. I know some of our colleagues and other agencies weren't able to do any of that. So um, it, it's happening, but certainly uh, a little more challenging when some of us have home school um, from home as well. <laughs> so, um, we're making it work, but um, yeah, we're looking forward to when COVID's over and we can, you know, do everything as usual. Although who knows, uh, you know, we've got such, so much feedback from these virtual events that at very least a hybrid model may be something that we pursue for some of them, um, given just the outreach and, and the availability. Uh, not everyone can um, travel all the time to the different events. Um, and, and so having something accessible virtually too is useful. But again, I, I come back to having things like the trap network and, and um, other avenues for us to capture data um, because even if just a few sites are still uh, monitoring things, that still gives us something to, to understand and, and see where um, without it, uh, we would be so siloed and have a harder time getting that information, sorry, um, that um, we'd have uh, given that we're, we're working from home or uh, at limited capacities. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today on the Green Talk podcast. I think it was a great conversation, a lot to think about, certainly a lot to keep an eye out for in terms of insects in our field. Um, we look forward to seeing you in whatever capacity over the, the next couple of months as we still deal with the pandemic. But we appreciate your time today. Well, thank you for having me. Joining me today on the podcast, we have CEO Crosby Devitt. Thanks for joining me today, Crosby. Hi, Paige. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Good. So a few things have kind of happened. It's kind of a, it's a busy season for our farmer members, um, but that doesn't mean that we're not busy as well ourselves because uh, some big things are happening at Green Farmers of Ontario. What sort of big things uh, can you share with us that are going on right now? Sure. It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a busy time uh, getting the crop in, but uh, with at GFO, this is kind of our budgeting and planning season for the next year. Our kind of official fiscal year starts June 1. This is our opportunity as, uh, as an organization to look at the past year and look ahead to the next year and say, what are the, uh, what are the big things that we want to do? Uh, what are important to our farmer members, et cetera. And as we know, uh, 2020 and 21 so far have been very different. Uh, we've pivoted to virtual events where we'd always want to be in person. Um, so as we look ahead, uh, we know the next little while we'll be having to continue primarily in the virtual format, but uh, things are looking looking encouraging as we get into the fall and so on. And so we are planning to be back in person uh, with our events, things like the March Classic that'll be coming up next March. Uh, we're planning for in-person, um, but we're also kind of having that plan B uh, in the face of uncertainty. And so it's pretty exciting to look ahead uh, to something that's maybe a little bit more normal, uh, but also some of those public events where we're trying to reach the uh, general public. Uh, you would have probably seen uh, a launch of a new initiative from Grain Farmers of Ontario called What's Your Food Story just in the last couple of weeks. And so that's pretty exciting. It's a way to bridge that, uh, that gap that we see between, you know, the general public that uh, eats every day and relies on farmers indirectly uh, with farmers that are actually growing the food that they're, they're consuming and, uh, and try to find those common bonds. 
Yeah, for sure. I know I've actually been reaching out to a few uh, uh, fairs that are happening over the next couple of months. Well, not months, but in the fall time to see if, you know, what their plans are and if we should start planning for them as well. So the hope is that we eventually we'll get back, but you know, we've got other options. Nothing's certain right now, but uh, it's, I think we've shown, you know, both as GFO and as an org, as a, as an industry, uh, and I guess as a society, how fast we can actually pivot and change. It's, it's pretty incredible. And uh, I guess I'm excited about the future and uh, as how things, how things shape up here, it's going to be good. Exactly. Exactly. So speaking of excited about the future, um, I know you kind of went back to the farm to do a, a little bit of planting yourself. So how is Plant 21 shaping up across Ontario? Yeah, it's been an incredible run here over the last few weeks. Um, you know, talking to farmers across the province for the most part, uh, you know, as we sit now, the uh, major, major portion of the corn crop is is in the ground and a lot of it is out of the ground as well uh, as we go. Uh, um, and the soybean crop as well. So it's been it's been dry, much drier than normal, and that has created a pretty good window to get the crop in the ground, uh, get all the seed in the ground. And I think most farmers right now are uh, looking for a bit of moisture to uh, help that that uh, those early seedlings grow and uh, get off to a healthy start. But uh, it's certainly been a, uh, a year where we haven't had those stretches of wet weather in the middle of planting season, which is is kind of nice uh, for a change to have that uh, so we're not looking at a real late planting season so um, it's incredible uh, when farmers across this province get get planting uh, how much work they can get done and how many acres can be covered in a, in a day or in a week um, it's it's just incredible uh, to think about you know we've got over six million acres you know, of corn, soybeans, and wheat in this province. And, uh, you know, so yeah, over 5 million acres were basically seeded in the last uh, few weeks. Pretty That's incredible. Crazy. That's a massive number of acres to be seeded. I know it sure is. when I was up at the family farm a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about it and my uncle said, yeah, we've got like two fields left to do. And I said, oh, okay, that seems like not very much. He's like, no, it'll take us a day. So the fact that the technology has moved as well so that people can get that many acres done that that fast well and i think you know that's a good point too just you know to make it all come together um all the logistics have to work too right the seed suppliers the fertilizer equipment parts all those things uh fuel um and it's been a challenge uh and you know we've heard of some some you know supply shortages here and there but for the most part uh the industry has been able to come together and get everything in the right place at the right time and make it happen. So that's pretty, pretty impressive given the challenges I think that uh, everyone's been facing this last year. Exactly. Yeah. So something that happens fairly regularly um, and kind of provides farmers a better outlook or more of an outlook on what's going on around the world is the Nuffield scholarship. Um, do you kind of want to talk about that a little bit? One of the things that we know is that if we look at Ontario grain farmers, uh, what sets us apart? What what allows us uh, as an industry and as individual farmers to be successful? And that's um, being early adopters of technology. It, it's about looking for new ways of improving our operations, being more efficient, being more productive, marketing better, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, to do that, often uh, that success has come from looking outside of the province 
um, and applying new things that uh, are found around the world. And one way of doing that and uh, has been the Nuffield Canada Farming Scholarship. And basically that scholarship has been running uh, in Canada since the 1950s. Um, and in the recent years, Grain Farmers of Ontario has become a sponsor of that program. And so what that sponsorship allows is for uh, farmers or those involved in the Ontario grain industry to apply to that scholarship. And uh, the, those that are, you know, the recipient of that scholarship has the opportunity to travel around the world, uh, study a topic of interest that's uh, of value to Ontario grain farmers, and then bring that home and share it and uh, share their experiences. And so uh, applications are open for this coming year. Uh, I think they're due the end of June. Um, and basically nuffield.ca is the website uh, and you'll see all the criteria and all the information there. And I just wanted to put a plug in for that. It's a really amazing program. It's a unique uh, way of building uh, linkages with farmers around the world and learning what goes on and bringing that home and sharing it with your farmers. So uh, anyone that's got it, any interest or uh, you know somebody, certainly pass that on and take, take a serious look at it. It's, it's an amazing program. Yeah, for, I agree. Um, from what I've read and the, and the things I've seen about the Nuffield Scholarship, it's definitely something to get involved in um, for farmers everywhere. But with that, Crosby, I want to say thank you for your time today and sitting down and having a chat with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Paige. Uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening to our Green Talk podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests this week, Tracy Bowdy and Crosby Devitt. If you like what you've heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And remember, five-star reviews help us grow our audience.